0: Father, as we come to Your Word today, we thank You that it is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness. We thank You, Lord, that Your Word speaks truth and wisdom into our lives. And we thank You for it because we know that without Your Holy Word, without knowing what pleases You, we never could. We couldn't even strive. And so we thank You for Your Word. And we approach it knowing that it is Your inerrant, your infallible Word and that it will accomplish what You desire for it to accomplish. And so in light of that, Lord, open our ears to hear. Open our eyes to see as Your Word would instruct us for the glory of Christ. Amen. Well, if you have your Bible with you today, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Genesis. We're going to be looking at Genesis chapter 30, uh, finishing up Genesis chapter 30 today. You know, everybody knows that there are certain topics that are almost certain to make people uncomfortable when you bring them up in conversation. And the big two that everybody, everybody thinks of off the top of their head are probably uh, politics and religion. Uh, Those are kind of the obvious ones. If you want to make sure that you uh, increase the likelihood of you locking horns with somebody uh, in a culture that has as wide a political spectrum as we have today, talk politics. It's almost guaranteed to make people uncomfortable. Now, in terms of religion, that's something that I personally like talking about. Believe it or not, a pretty obvious one. But I also understand that the topic of religion or the subject of religion is something that you need to approach with a lot of grace. It's something that you want to introduce into a, a casual conversation very cautiously and very carefully. So religion and politics, two very uncomfortable topics, but according to a recent survey that was done by banking giant Wells Fargo, there's another topic that people have become even more sensitive about more than politics, more than religion. And that topic is money or personal finances. In fact, 44% of Americans surveyed in this, uh, in, in this uh, survey indicated that a discussion about their personal finances is the most uncomfortable topic for them. People, have, people would rather talk about death People would rather talk about uh, religion or politics than they would about money or personal finance. So the list of of terrifying topics, if you will, looks something like this. Money and finances uh, was deemed an uncomfortable topic of conversation by 44% of those polled, death, 38%, politics, 35%, and religion, 32%. So with that in mind, you might guess that people get really, really uncomfortable when you mix two of these topics together, like money and religion. Truth be told, there are two errors that people, including Christians, including self-professing Christians at least, the two errors that people make when it comes to money and religion. On the one hand, you have the prosperity gospel, which is absolutely heretical, Uh, The idea that God's desire is for us to be materially rich and carnally satisfied beyond our wildest dreams. And it used to be that the only place that you could find this kind of preaching was if you turned on TBN uh, late at night and they'd have people every night on there. But that is not the case in our day and age. With the proliferation of the internet, the popularity of the internet, and with the declining Christianity in our culture, the prosperity gospel has become increasingly common. In fact, most of you know that President Trump's personal pastor, and that's a term that I'm using very, very loosely in this context, uh, President Trump's personal pastor is a woman who teaches the prosperity gospel. A false teacher named Creflo Dollar once tweeted for the world to see that quote jesus bled and died so that we can lay claim to the promise of financial prosperity i mean that is so far from a biblical view of of money and faith it's hard to believe that there would be anybody in the world who would be duped by this it's hard to believe that anybody would actually take that but they do So this is one of the errors that people fall into when it comes to religion and money. They believe this lie that God has promised to materially or or financially bless a person in accordance with the size or, or the strength of their faith. That's one of the errors. But on the other hand, you have an equally damnable and an equally dangerous heresy that was actually very common prior to the Reformation, especially within the Roman Catholic Church, and that is the idea that the more destitute, or the more financially poor and and deprived a person is, the more righteous that person must be. So, according to this view, people in ministry especially ought to be poor, ought to be destitute. And as a pastor, to put aside my my personal interests, that is not a biblical view at all. If you think about the way that, that monks... Used to live, the way they used to deprive themselves in an effort to earn God's grace and and to look righteous before men. I mean, there are still plenty of people, Christians included, who think that this is the way that Christians, especially people in ministry, are supposed to live. I remember hearing a story about a man who took Jesus's instruction to the rich young ruler from the book of Mark to go and sell all you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me that's what Jesus said to the rich young ruler and this guy said well this is a command that applies to everyone who desires to follow Christ and so he did he sold all that he had he gave it to the poor and he lived as a homeless man for several years convinced that this was the only way that every Christian was supposed to live. And that simply isn't the case either. So these two views, these competing voices, have stirred up a lot of confusion among Christians about how to handle money, how to handle their prosperity. We need to know what God's Word says about handling prosperity, and it says a lot. You might say, well, I'm not exactly prosperous, so this doesn't apply to me. And first of all, I would challenge the notion that you are not prosperous. Most of you drove here today. Most of you, within the past month, have had somebody cook a meal for you. So I would challenge the idea that you are not prosperous. I'd say that maybe uh, you don't have as much of an abundance as your neighbor, perhaps, but you probably have an abundance compared to most people in the world. So this absolutely does apply to you. But secondly, while we may not all have everything, every one of us has something. And prosperity, like time, like your life, like anything that you have, it's all a stewardship issue. And so with that said, Turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 30. We're going to be covering Genesis chapter 30 verses 25 to 43. And the overarching theme or the overarching point of our passage today is that any prosperity that we have comes from the hand of God. And further, a second point, which is just as important, is that God's purpose in blessing us with any degree of prosperity is always primarily for the sake of blessing others and advancing His kingdom purposes. Let me say that again. God's purpose in blessing us with any degree of prosperity is always primarily for the sake of blessing others and advancing His kingdom purposes. And that's just a a principle of good, good stewardship. And some of you might say, I'm not a I'm not very comfortable with that. Some of you might say, I I don't agree with that, and, and that's okay. I'm going to explain it as we go along, and I am convinced that you will see what I'm talking about by the time we finish today. So let's start our passage by looking at Genesis chapter 30, verses 25 and 26. It says, As soon as Rachel had born Joseph... Jacob said to Laban, send me away that I may go to my own home and country. Give me my wives and my children for whom I have served you, that I may go, for you know the service that I have given you. Now just to set a little bit of context here, we have to remember that back in chapter 28, God had promised Jacob that He would bless him, that He would prosper him, that He would protect him. He had this dream of a ladder that was descending from heaven and God made the promise to him in that dream. He said in verses 13-15 to of chapter 28, God said to Jacob, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie. I will give it to you and your descendants. Your descendants will also be like the dust of the earth and you will spread out to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you... And in your descendants shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. And at the time, and in the the years that followed that, I imagine that it was pretty hard for Jacob to wrap his mind around that. I mean, how exactly could all the families of the earth be blessed through Jacob and his descendants, how, how could he prosper so abundantly that they could go in every direction apparently fairly easily? But after serving his uncle Laban as a slave for many years, during which time he gained multiple wives, he now has many children. We saw last week he had 12 boys and, and, and Dinah. Don't forget Dinah. He now has many children, and so the fulfillment of this promise must have seemed a little bit more tangible, must have seemed a little bit more, more real, more, uh, more possible at least in Jacob's mind. Jacob, you must remember, Jacob came to Laban with nothing, and after 20 years of serving him, he still has Nothing. He's received enough to stay alive, but not enough to get ahead. He's been used. He's been swindled. He's been cheated by Laban more than once. And we saw that this is God's discipline upon him because Jacob himself had always been a cheater and a swindler. And he knows, Jacob knows that Laban, while he loved the prosperity that he had gained as a result of Jacob's work, Laban, he knew, had no desire to reciprocate. He had no desire to take care of Jacob. No desire to bless Jacob. No desire to ensure the prosperity of Jacob. And we're going to see in in the next chapter, uh, Jacob is going to rebuke Laban saying, if the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had not been for me, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. He knew Laban's character. He'd been there for 20 years. And it started by being swindled. He knew that this is how Laban would have treated him. He would have sent him away with nothing. And Laban agrees with that assessment, by the way, in the next chapter, saying in the very next verse, the daughters are my daughters, and the children are my children, and the flocks are my flocks, and all that you see is mine. And there's some truth in that. Yeah, those are his daughters, but that, that's beside the point. Those are Jacob's wives. So Jacob knows Laban's character as we come into our passage today. He knows that Laban has sinned against him greatly by failing and refusing, really, to pay Jacob a fair wage. And this is what sets the stage for Jacob declaring his intentions to depart from Laban. Now, the question that we should be asking ourselves is, what is really so wrong with what Laban would do? What is Laban's sin specifically? Because it's not sinful to have an abundance in and of itself. There's nothing necessarily wrong with having a lot of stuff. But at the root of Laban's complete self-centeredness, complete selfishness, I'm convinced that you would find the great silent sin that we call covetousness. There's perhaps no sin in Christian circles in all of Christendom, that gets less acknowledgement. But covetousness is a deadly, deadly sin, if for no other reason, because it prevents a person from experiencing true joy, true contentness. What could possibly be more relevant, by the way, as we enter into the Christmas season than taking a look at the effects of covetousness in Laban and Jacob? But what is covetousness, you might ask? And you might get a few different definitions for it. One person might say the desire to accumulate things. Okay, they're, they're on to something there. Another person might say the desire for things that don't belong to us. Okay, I, I, I agree with both of those things. Those things are both true, but I do think that there's another element to covetousness. And that is, I think, one of the defining symptoms or or traits of covetousness is that it's when we love the gifts that we have more than we love the giver of good gifts. In other words, it's when we love and desire the things that God has given us, has blessed us with more than we love and more than we desire God Himself. One anonymous Puritan author had this to say about it. He writes, quote, Covetousness does not come to you with its name plainly written on its forehead, but like a fox steals in when and where you least expect it, dresses itself up in the garb of prudence, foresight, industry, creeps in under the leaves of profession, and when it has got safely in, you will find to your cost what an enemy you have let come within your walls. End quote. Covetousness is perhaps... The subtlest sin. You believe all the right things. You even go to church regularly. You pray regularly. You study your Bible regularly. But covetousness is such a subtle thing. You might not even realize that it's lurking under the surface. And so with that in mind, in in Laban's case, he probably could have made some kind of, of logical or rational argument for his right to all that he had. And for us, we can probably justify it too failing to recognize covetousness for what it is someone might say well i I need to eat first and foremost i i need to eat and so they they go to their their favorite restaurant every night and they order filet mignon and the the most expensive wine to the tune of 75 dollars a day and then when it comes time to supporting the church or supporting uh, uh various ministries they say well i i have nothing left over i don't have very much to give. My, my finances are poor. M- maybe you say, well, I, I have to save my money because I want to retire someday or or what if a recession comes back? But then again, when the offering plate comes around, you're able to justify giving less than perhaps you should have. And, and let me clarify that the, the biblical, the New Testament standard of giving is what God has convicted you of giving. But if you... Defy that. If you you give less than He has convicted you in your heart of giving, we're talking about some pretty dangerous waters that we're entering there. Trust me, I know how easy it is to justify a lack of generosity. It is so easy. Because there are always, everywhere you look, there are 10 million things that want your money, that want your Prosperity. The anonymous Puritan author notes quote there is no sin which God warns man so much against as this, and no sin for which man puts in so many excuses. Quote. In other words. The truth is, God warns us in His Word about the sin of covetousness arguably more than He does about any other sin. And yet there is no other sin for which man makes so many excuses. For which man justifies his sin so flippantly, so easily. Laban is no exception. Laban loves what Jacob has given him. But he loves what, Laban, or what Jacob has given him more than he loves Jacob. See, the risk of riches is that we will be tempted to love our riches more than we love the one who gave them to us. More than we love people. More than, more than anything else. So let's see how Jacob's declaration of, of his departure plays out. Let's look at verses 27 to 34. But Laban said to him, said to Jacob, If I have found favor in your sight, I have learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me because of you. Name your wages and I will give it. Jacob said to him, You yourself know how I have served you and how your livestock has fared with me. For you had little before I came and it has increased abundantly. And the Lord has blessed you wherever I turned. But now when shall I provide for my own household also? He said, what shall I give you? Jacob said, you shall not give me anything. If you'll do this for me, I will again pasture your flock and keep it. Let me pass through all your flock today, removing from it every speckled and spotted sheep and every black lamb and the spotted and speckled among the goats, and they shall be my wages. So my honesty will answer for me later when you come to look into my wages with you. Every one that is not speckled and spotted among the goats and black among the lambs, if found with me, shall be counted stolen. Laban said, good. Let it be as you have said. Now, if you think about the way that Laban responds to Jacob's announcement that he, that he wants to leave, uh, it, it's really the first time that we've seen Laban Kind of, kind of humbled. Um, he grovels a little bit here. He, I, I imagine he, he has to have been caught off guard by Jacob's announcement. And so he says, if I've gained favor in your eyes or in your sight, I mean, if you think about it, that's kind of a strange thing for a, 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 an owner, a slave master, a servant master, to say to one of his slaves or one of his servants, So I I don't think he necessarily meant to sound so humbled, uh, so at the disposal of, of Jacob, but my guess is that he knew in the depths of his heart, he knew that he owed Jacob more than even Jacob himself probably realized. And that's what we see in the passage that follows. We see that Laban is completely aware that all that he has, all the prosperity that he's been blessed with, can be traced right back to Jacob. It's all because God blessed Jacob that Laban prospered. And so this is maybe something of a Freudian slip of the tongue for him to say, if I've if I found favor in your sight. Now the translation that, that we have is uh, that, that he figured out that his prosperity came from Jacob by divination which is kind of weird. This would be the weirdest case of divination in the entire Bible. But here's what we need to know. We need to know that the word uh, that gets translated as divination uh, can also be translated as I have become rich. So if you have one of our Bibles from the foyer, for example, you can see that there's a number 15 printed right there by that word in italic, leading us to a footnote that makes that clarification. So really what he's saying is I've become rich because of, of you. But either way, it's obvious that as Jacob announces his impending departure, the first thing, and, and maybe the only thing that comes to Laban's mind isn't the fact that this is his son-in-law who wants to leave, twi- twice over in fact. It's not that he's going to be losing his daughters if Jacob leaves. It's certainly not because you know uh, his grandchildren are leaving. No, the first thing that comes to his mind is money. Money. I, I've prospered with Jacob here, he's thinking. So what am I going to do when, if, if he leaves? I can't let him leave. No, the first thing that comes to his mind is money. It's the prosperity that he's gained because of God's blessing upon Jacob. So Laban, thinking that everybody has a price, says to, to Jacob, name your wage. Name, name your price. What, what do I have to give you for you to stay? So Laban is back on his game at this point. He's not off guard anymore. He's, he's on his game. We've already seen how willing he is to cheat someone, how willing he is to stack the deck in his own favor. He was the kind of guy who thought he knew the price of everything, but the truth is that he didn't know or care about the value of anything he was a businessman. He was a businessman who was just looking out for number one. Just looking out for his own best interests. And clearly, if you think about it, if Jacob wants to leave, his idea is, well, if he, he's going to need money if he's going to leave. And if he needs money, he's going to have to work. So Laban isn't going to give him a penny for nothing. Right? And Jacob's response is to point back to the obvious. He says, you know how you've prospered under the work of my hand. He recalls how Laban had next to nothing when Jacob first arrived. Maybe he had a few sheep, but he didn't have any servants. His daughter was out taking care of the sheep. Laban had next to nothing when Jacob first got there, but the Lord blessed Laban as the Lord blessed Jacob. Now we have to understand that the word increased here, as in increased abundantly, in verse 30. It's actually the same word that we saw back in chapter 28, verse 14, when God had promised Jacob, saying, Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. So that word spread. In verse 14, chapter 28, the word spread is the same word in Hebrew that gets translated here as increased abundantly. So far in Genesis, these are actually the only two times that this Hebrew word has been used, which tells us there's a connection. They're used in close proximity, so there's a connection. If you look down at verse 43, it says, Thus the man increased greatly and had large flocks, female servants and male servants and camels and donkeys. So there it is again, increased greatly. These three uses of the same Hebrew word underscore the entire point of this passage. And that is that any prosperity that you have is from God. It comes from the hand of God. Now you might be wondering why God would allow Laban to prosper. Laban is a wicked man. He's not a godly man. He has no concern at all for the Lord. So why do the wicked prosper? That's the question of the ages, isn't it? We see that question throughout the Psalms. We see that question throughout the Old Testament. Job, for example, he asked, why do the wicked live, reach old age, and grow mighty in power? That's from Job 21.7. Psalm 73.3, the psalmist says, I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. The question that we ask, the question that these people asked is the same why why God would these people who hate you who defy you who do everything against you why would you let them prosper and we need to understand something about money something very important and that is that there are only two ways that God uses prosperity two purposes that prosperity serves in God's economy The first purpose of prosperity is the obvious one. It's to bless. It's to bless. That's what God had promised Jacob back in chapter 28. He was going to bless Jacob. But we must not overlook the reason for God's prospering of Jacob. It was primarily so that Jacob, in accordance with God's plans, could advance God's purposes in blessing all the families of Jacob the earth and i would argue that the same is true for you and me today if god has blessed you with prosperity and he has we all have some degree of prosperity if he has it was not so that you could become an increasingly self-centered self-indulgent person which is the tendency that we that we have in our flesh your purpose in life if you are in christ your purpose in life is to glorify God and to serve God, advancing His kingdom. That is your primary purpose in life if you are in Christ. And it's impossible to divorce the purpose of the things that you have with the purpose of your money. In other words, your prosperity can't serve a different purpose than you do. Your prosperity has the same purpose that you do. To glorify God and to advance His kingdom. The first purpose of prosperity then is to bless. The second purpose of prosperity is the opposite. It's to curse. God uses prosperity to curse someone. God hands the unrepentant sinner who loves prosperity over to the their idol. Whatever that idol may be. Prosperity, sure. And so for the person who loves prosperity more than they love God, the person who loves their, their, their gifts more than they love the gift giver, prosperity becomes an idol. It's a, it's a false god, which Jesus refers to as mammon. Mammon is a god that shows no grace, who stirs the heart to wicked deeds and to being covetous more and more and more. And this is why God allowed Laban to prosper. This is why God has granted great riches, great material accumulation to Laban, who is a wicked and abusive man. It's to curse him. He's handed Laban over to his false god. When God curses a man with prosperity, it is a judgment, it is a stern judgment against that man because that man will find no true lasting satisfaction in his abundance. All he'll want is more. And as he gathers more, all he'll want is more. So he finds misery in it. And the truth is he wouldn't want it any other way. That's the deceptiveness of sin. That's the risk of riches. When God curses a man with prosperity, He does so knowing that they will become increasingly self-indulgent, increasingly self-centered, and increasingly miserable. And so in that sense, it's a temporal judgment against a man to prosper when he doesn't serve God's purposes with it, when he's only looking out for himself. It's been said that the worst thing a man could give his greatest enemy would be an abundance of the world's goods. And yet we must take heed and examine ourselves lest we neglect our own souls on this matter, our own hearts on this matter. And as we enter into the most covetous the most consumeristic the most materialistic time of the year guard your hearts friends guard your hearts so jacob says the lord has blessed you wherever i turned but now when shall i provide for my own household also laban had prospered greatly but jacob had nothing to provide for his own household And it doesn't take a genius to see what a great injustice this is here. See, a covetous heart, one of the things that marks a covetous heart is it doesn't consider the needs of others. It doesn't consider what is just or what is fair. It doesn't desire to bless others. It doesn't desire anything but self-satisfaction. And so Jacob proposes what he feels is fair. He proposes that he be allowed to pass through the flock. He says, removing from it every speckled and spotted sheep and every black lamb and the spotted and speckled among the goats. And he even cushions the deal, saying that if he's found to have taken anything more than that, it'll be considered theft. Now, because you and I aren't shepherds, we might might not realize what an awesome deal this is. We might not realize that this sounds like the deal of a lifetime to Laban, because it wasn't uncommon for shepherds to start negotiations at getting somewhere between 10 and 20% of the sheep and the goats being shepherded, plus a percentage of the milk and and meat from all the other sheep and goats in the flock. But that's not what Jacob asks for. That's that's what would have been common in ancient Mesopotamia. That's not what Jacob wants. Instead, he just wants the spotted and the speckled lambs and goats in addition to the black lambs. Now, easy question here. What color are most sheep? They're white, right? Okay, and we know that when there's a black one, black ones are pretty rare and they kind of stand out. That's where we get the the colloquialism, you know, that somebody's a, a black sheep because they stand out. And most goats are either black or brown. Well, how many sheep and goats are spotted and speckled? Very, very few. Far fewer than even 10%. And so when Laban hears this proposal, in his ears, he's thinking, man, this is a deal better than anything I've ever heard before. It was a deal better than anything you could have found on Black Friday. And so he says, good, let let it be as you have said. He just jumps on it right away before Jacob has a chance to change his mind. And so Jacob is going to remove the multicolored from among the sheep and goats and he'll shepherd the plain ones that belong to Laban. That's the plan. Then when the plain colored ones breed, the normal white sheep would remain Laban's, but any baby sheep that were multicolored would be Jacob's. And so this was a really sweet deal for Laban. But here's the tragedy. It wasn't enough. It wasn't enough. He gets this, this great deal, and it wasn't enough for him. And, th- and that's the problem with covetousness. Even if you prosper greatly, it won't be enough, it doesn't satisfy in, in any kind of true or lasting sense. And so in one sense, the covetous heart lies to itself. It deceives itself, thinking that something will be satisfying. Eventually you'll reach a point where enough is is enough and, and you're fully satisfied, but it doesn't happen. That's not the way it works. It never satisfies in a lasting sense. And don't be fooled if you think that getting what you want for Christmas is going to bring you true, lasting satisfaction. It won't. It won't. Don't, don't fall for that lie. Don't live as Laban lived. Coveting and desiring as Laban coveted and desired. It wasn't enough for Laban to have prospered greatly for all these years while he deprived Jacob. And it wasn't enough to, to get this, this deal of a lifetime put on the table by Jacob. So let's continue. Verses 35-43. to But that day Laban removed the male goats that were striped and spotted and all the female goats that were speckled and spotted, every one that had white on it and every lamb that was black and put them in charge of his sons. And he set a distance of three days' journey between himself and Jacob. And Jacob pastured the rest of Laban's flock. Then Jacob took fresh sticks of poplar and almond and plane trees and peeled white streaks in them and exposing the white of the sticks. He set the sticks that he had peeled in front of the flocks in the troughs, that is the watering places where the flocks came to drink. And since they bred, when they came to drink, the flocks bred in front of the sticks. And so the flocks brought forth striped, speckled, and spotted. And Jacob separated the lambs and set the faces of the flocks toward the striped and all the black in the flock of Laban. He put his own droves apart and did not put them with Laban's flock. Whenever the stronger of the flock were breeding, Jacob would lay the sticks in the troughs before the eyes of the flock that they might breed among the sticks. But for the feebler of the flock, he would not lay them there. So the feebler would be Laban's and the stronger Jacob's. Thus the man increased greatly and had large flocks, female servants and male servants and camels and donkeys. So what we see here, is that once this great deal is put on the table by Laban, Laban immediately swindles, or or at least attempts to swindle Jacob once again, even though he's got this great deal. So he goes in, he goes through his flocks ahead of Jacob, removing the ones that would have been set aside as Jacob's wage. Like I said, Laban was offered this, this great deal, but it wasn't enough it wasn't enough and so he takes the animals that were removed he gives them to his sons to care for and he he takes them on a a three-day journey away from Jacob the agreement was supposed to be that Jacob was supposed to go through and find the spotted and speckled animals from the mix but Laban beats him to the punch and you might ask why did why did Jacob allow him to do this I mean, he had to have noticed, right? There's no indication here that he says anything. But in our minds, we've got to think, you know, he had to notice as he looked out at the flock whom he'd been pasturing for 20 years, huh, where are all the spotted and speckled ones? Where are all the multicolored ones that are supposed to be my wage? So he had to have noticed, and yet he never says anything about it. He never speaks out about Laban's underhanded ways in this case. And there's only one explanation for why Jacob remained silent, why he allowed Laban to do this. And that's because he trusted in the Lord. He trusted in the Lord's promise to bless him and to prosper him, even though Laban stacked the deck, so to speak. Now, there is a time to speak out against such injustice. And indeed, Jacob is going to call Laban out on what a swindling cheapskate he is in the next chapter. But for now, Jacob simply trusts the matter in God's hands, as he should. And so Jacob takes the sheep out to pasture, knowing that as they drink, they would breed. And what Jacob does here with these sticks, peeling the sticks, is kind of a mix, I think, of superstition and faith. As he, as he peels these sticks, he seems to think that doing so will influence the, the color of the offspring. So what are we supposed to do with that? that? That was a common view in ancient Mesopotamia, and in some cultures around the world today, they, they have the same view that, you know, if, if you're looking at something while you breed, if they're looking at something while the, the animals breed, you know, you'll get a certain result from it. And that's not scientific at all, by the way. That's why I say it's a mix of superstition and faith. So what do we do with that? Well, James Montgomery Boyce points out that there are basically only three options. The first option is just to chalk the fact that the offspring were speckled up to God blessing Jacob despite his superstition, kind of humoring him more or less. The second option is to surmise that Jacob must have known something about the the breeding practices or the breeding habits of the sheep that we don't know today in our day and age. He must have had some kind of scientific knowledge that we're unaware of today that what the animals see while they're mating really does somehow influence or affect the color of the offspring. And one commentator who holds this view says this. He says, quote, It may be that Jacob had learned certain things about these animals which modern biologists have not yet approached, End quote. And I would say, that seems like a little bit of a stretch. It seems unlikely, but I guess, logically, it's a possibility. We don't know everything there is to know about biology, so it's at least a possibility, I suppose. The third view is that God had actually instructed Jacob to do this, that he had instructed Jacob to use the striped branches not as a scientific or even a logical means of producing the desired result, and that being spotted and speckled offspring, but as a physical representation of Jacob's faith and obedience unto God. His willingness to do something that On the surface looked completely ridiculous and didn't seem to make a whole lot of sense. He did it simply because God had instructed him to do so. I mean, if you think about Noah, you know, when when he built the ark, even though it had never rained upon the land before, it didn't make sense on the surface for him to build this gigantic ark, other than it being a case of submission and faith and obedience unto God. So we should note that Jacob does speak in the next chapter of God giving him some degree of instruction in this case. But the point is that Jacob trusted the Lord. The Lord had made promises to him, and Jacob believed. He trusted God. But Laban, conversely, Laban trusts in his own understanding. Jacob wasn't trying to get rich necessarily. Not, 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 not like uh, you know, he wanted to be where Laban was, you know, just because he'd done all this work. No, he just wanted his fair wage. He's not trying to get rich per se, but Laban is willing to acquire wealth and prosperity at just about any cost. And Jacob is not trying to cheat. Jacob's not trying to swindle for his prosperity. In fact, he's willing to work very hard for it. But Laban. Is willing to deprive others for the sake of increasing his own personal treasure, his own personal fortune. Boyce writes, "Quote: An employer who is determined merely to get as much out of his business as possible will underpay his workers, thus diminishing their desire to work, and with it their productivity." which will result in increasingly inefficient production and an eventual failure to develop new products and markets. End quote. And this is how God curses a greedy man, a covetous man, with prosperity. Eventually, his workers lose motivation and his company takes a turn for the worse. His greed, therefore, his covetous greed will be his own undoing eventually. So just... So we're clear on this issue. This passage isn't giving some kind of justification for socialism. You know, Jacob's not asking or demanding to be Laban's equal. He's not demanding to get it for free just because they live in the same place. No, he's willing to work hard for it. So it's not a case for socialism. It's, It's definitely not a case for communism. It's actually making the case for libertarian capitalism. And this is how the free market is supposed to work. The employer makes a better and and more competitive company by keeping his employees, his workers happy, by paying them a fair wage so that they're motivated to keep working hard and improving the company. That's the way it's supposed to work. God never wants us to be slothful. He wants us to put forth our best effort into anything that we do, including our work. And so even though Laban thought that he had an ace up his sleeve, so to speak, Jacob does end up prospering, despite Laban's efforts to swindle him once again. But it's not because Jacob was so smart, or so cunning, or so wise. It's not because he was so lucky. It's because he trusted and obeyed the Lord. And that's what you and I must do too. We must trust the Lord. Maybe the real lesson here is to work hard. Glorifying God with your work. Working as unto the Lord, not for man. To work hard. Do your best. And to trust the Lord with the results. So I leave you with these three principles from this passage. Three principles. Number one. Do not attempt or strive or desire to prosper by taking shortcuts or by depriving others. In fact, don't even, don't even let the desire for prosperity enter your heart if it involves coveting. If you prosper, guard your heart against covetousness. If you prosper, may you see it as being from the hand of God by working hard, and by earning a fair wage. The tendency that we have when we have an abundance, when we have much, and it's so easy to do it, is to love the gift more than we love the gift giver. And once we do that, it becomes really, really easy to justify depriving others, taking shortcuts, or cheating for the sake of our own gain. The second principle Know that any prosperity that you have and all the prosperity that you have is from the hand of God. It is all from the hand of God. So be a good steward with it. Be generous with it. We of all people should be known as generous people because Christ has been generous with His grace to us. Glorify God with your prosperity. No matter how much or how little you have, If you believe that the primary purpose that you have in life in Christ is to glorify God, then you must also understand and believe that the primary purpose of everything that you have, including your prosperity, is to glorify God and advance the Gospel with it. Every aspect of your life should be pointed, should be aimed toward this same purpose end this same target of glorifying and serving God and advancing the gospel the third principle third and final principle is that the more prosperity that you have the more you will need to guard your heart against it and the more responsibility you will have before the Lord to be a good steward so keep your eyes and your heart set on Christ who was willing to abandon His comfort, who was willing to step down from heaven, take on flesh, and to redeem all who would repent and believe in Him, humbly obeying the will of the Father. That's what we celebrate this season. The incarnation, when Jesus stepped down from heaven, took on flesh, lived a perfect life, a sinless life, The sinless life that you and I should have lived, only to die the death that we should have died. And so I urge you to stay mindful of that throughout the Christmas season. It's it's really, really easy. We all know it. It's really easy to get caught up in all the consumerism, isn't it? There are all these commercials. There are all these things being mailed to you with special coupons or emailed to you. You know, that's... People go crazy on Black Friday and Cyber Monday because there are all these specials. It's really easy to get caught up in the consumerism of the Christmas season. But I want to encourage you to celebrate, celebrate Christ and the incarnation of Christ this season in such a way so as to make it that your celebration of Christmas looks entirely different from the way that the world celebrates Christmas. Christmas. Repent of any inclination that you might have that might rise up toward covetousness, knowing that when we confess our sin and turn to Christ, He is faithful and just to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So rather than, rather than coveting and pursuing things and stuff, material goods this Christmas season like the world does, I urge you to make Christ and His righteousness your greatest desire and your greatest pursuit, not just in the Christmas season, but always. And in so doing, you will be blessed with a peaceful contentedness that not only lasts, but which is far more valuable than any earthly prosperity. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. And we thank You for the way that it instructs us and convicts us and shines a light into the dark corners of our hearts. Thank You for the way it inspects us, challenges us, corrects us. And so, Lord, as we come into this very materialistic season in our culture give us the wisdom to not covet give us the wisdom to continue loving you more than we love the abundance that you bless us with we thank you for the abundance that we have in this country we thank you that we don't have to worry about where we will sleep or what we will eat but that you have provided more than generously for us. But teach us, Lord, to have the right perspective of it all. That we might glorify you, not only with ourselves, but with all that we have. For the glory of Christ. Amen.